Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast. Um, my guest today is Melis Labens, a research fellow in politics at Napoli College at the University of Oxford. Melis holds a PhD in political science from Yale University. And her research centers on democratic backsliding, political parties, and electoral behavior. Melis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sashek. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, uh, you're working on a book uh, entitled Incumbents Against Democracy. And this is uh, about the conditions under which democratically elected incumbents can uh, take over democratic institutions and establish authoritarian control. And I think it's very fitting that we today talk about the Turkey and the upcoming elections, which were just pushed to, to May by the Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And this is a very remarkable year because it's it's 20 years since Erdogan came to power as, well, he was a prime minister then, 2003, and also it's 100 years since Turkey became a republic. So, uh, and we had just well, less than four months until the elections. So, Melis, I would like to start with asking you to, to give us our listeners who might not be following the, the Turkish elections so closely, what is the broad political landscape uh, before the elections? Of course. So, as you know, Erdogan has managed to obtain um, large majorities in parliament for several electoral cycles after he was first elected. His party was first elected in 2002. So, until about until the elections of 2015, that is for uh, to the elections of 2002, where, where their victory was sort of a surprise. Then the consolidation election of 2007, where they had a great result uh, and obtained a majority again in 2011. Until 2015, um, they simply were very popular. In 2015, um, the consolidation of the Kurdish left-wing uh, secular party and its alliance across civil society led to their um, entering parliament, passing the 10% electoral threshold that Turkey has to keep out, essentially, um, you know, Kurdish and, and in the past Islamist and left-wing politics. Uh, so that when the Kurds managed to pass it, for the first time, it threatened Erdogan's majority, which, which he actually lost uh, briefly in 2015. But the reaction was simply to start the war with the Kurds, uh, back then, um, you know, kindle a nationalist sentiment and obtain again a majority in a repeated election five months after that, in late 2015. Since then, uh, politics has gotten increasingly repressive. Um, the leader of the Kurdish party has been jailed after those events. As you are probably uh, you know, familiar with, there was a coup attempt um, in 2016, led by what was Gulenist uh, military officers, which led to even greater paranoia um, in the Erdogan government and culminated in two years of state of emergency and the constitutional referendum held under the state of emergency to completely overhaul the political system and install a hyper-presidential authoritarian regime. What I mean by that is that Erdogan has practically every power. He can only be uh, restrained by a parliamentary supermajority, which the opposition currently doesn't have, uh, and essentially um, rights uh, and independence of institutions have been severely curtailed, not only by the referendum, but also by a long process of constitutional changes before that. So... Where that brings us today, uh, the consolation today is two things. First of all, Erdogan, after 2015, and actually even before, when he started losing popularity, his party 
uh, could no longer manage to obtain only by themselves a majority of the seats in parliament. So since 2015, uh, first and formally, and then formally, they have actually been in coalition with the nationalists, with an old nationalist um, uh, party, which is a you know, right-wing, I would say, um, unreformed nationalist party. Right. Um, and they currently are in a formal coalition, if you like. So even though, uh, so the majority of Erdogan in parliament currently depends on this nationalist party. So because of this situation, Erdogan has had to change electoral rules to stay in power with the national, with, the, with this coalition situation. So they allowed, uh, last time in the 2018 elections, they allowed um, coalitions, pre-electoral coalitions to avoid the 10% threshold problem for the nationalist party, which may not have passed this threshold. So this has given the opposition a new life, if you like, because by allowing coalitions, Erdogan also gave the opposition the chance to come together um, since 2018. And so this is more or less where we stand um, today. Erdogan is in this coalition with the nationalist party, which continues to weaken, such that they have had to reduce the threshold to 7% this time to make sure uh, the party passes. Um, and the, the coalition of Erdogan with the Nationalist Party actually triggered a split in the Nationalist Party such that uh, a bigger, if you like, uh, the, the split, the faction that split established a new party called E Party, which is now in the opposition. So it's an opposition Nationalist Party, a less, um, less extremist one, uh, which is currently in coalition, in, in alliance, in a pre-electoral alliance with the main opposition party, the Republican um, CHP, the Republican People's Party, which was, you know, set up by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk uh, at the dawn of the Republic, um, of course, has been transformed very much since then, but has claimed this tradition of Republican, of secular Republican uh, Turkey. And uh, other, the other major uh, actor in the in the field is obviously Kurdish uh, parties and politics. They have been seriously. Uh, weakened by um, years of heavy repression. Not only is their, you know, their, their successful, very successful candidate and once leader Selahattin Demirtas in jail, but they, all of their municipalities uh, in the sort of Kurdish dominant regions of the southeast, practically have been um, taken away from them. Uh, many of their politicians, local politicians, have been jailed and trustees have been appointed. Um, so in this field, there is an an opposition coalition currently between the secular Republican uh, JHP and the secular nationalist uh, E-Party. But the Kurdish uh, movement is out of this coalition currently. Uh, The reason, obviously, is the tension between nationalists and Kurds um, and the fear of being branded as terrorists for siding with them. However, there's also small parties in this coalition, two breakaways from the AKP, very small parties, an older Islamist party, uh, and the sort of center-right minor parties. So this is the current landscape. There's an opposition table of six, including these two bigger uh, opposition parties um, and f- four small parties. And separately, there is a sort of Kurdish left-wing um, coalition, which uh, you know, uh, which is a swing vote for d- determining the fate of this election, uh, but is currently somewhat marginalized um, in, in the campaign. Uh, maybe I'll stop here and let you ask. Uh, for right. A yeah. Yeah. It's 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 fascinating because it's uh, I think for 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 the outsider it might be difficult to grasp all the differences, but they might be actually crucial to the to the final outcome. And I don't know to what extent uh, we should trust the polls suggesting that Erdogan can actually lose the presidency, 
if the opposition stays united and and has the one candidate facing Erdogan, which actually I think they don't have currently, which is a bit strange. So exactly. Considering the elections so so close, uh, how how to explain it? And is it like for real that the it's not only about the parliament, also about the presidency? So Erdogan can actually lose everything. Is it is it possible? And, and why don't they have a candidate? Yes. So um, what happened with the change to the presidential system? Actually, Erdogan uh, created a hurdle for himself because they put in place a two round. Uh, presidential system, where in order to become president, Erdogan needs to win a, an absolute majority of the of the votes. Um, so um, this again also gave the opposition a chance to unite behind a single candidate. Now they did this in the 2019 local elections uh, very successfully in Istanbul uh, and also in Ankara, and with the backing also of the Kurds, or at least with you know in Istanbul in particular, um, the opposition uh, were were able to put in. Uh, their candidates as mayors. This was hugely important, not only symbolically, but also because Istanbul municipality in particular controls lots of resources and was a huge blow uh, to the IKP. The mayor, as you probably know, of Istanbul, uh, Ekrem Imamoglu, is, is a very popular and uh, skillful politician who managed to um, depolarize and either demobilize some of the AKP voters or win some over thanks to his, you know, Anatolian um, sort of, you know, he's from the Black Sea region where Erdogan also comes from. Istanbul has a lot of immigrants from the Black Sea uh, and also his relatively more uh, conservative religious profile. I'm not say conservative, but per- privately religious. Um, so Imamoglu stands out as a, as a very good candidate. Um, the mayor of Ankara, also a successful politician, is from the nationalist political tradition. So he is a bit uh, less trusted by the Kurds. Um, so, okay. After this victory of the opposition in Istanbul, as you know, the election in Istanbul was uh, annulled by the government using their control over the highest electoral court and repeated. Uh, and Imamoglu won an even greater victory in the in the repeated vote. So Imamoglu is currently the only politician to have defeated, uh, if not Erdogan personally, his then prime minister, a prominent politician uh, of, of the ruling party. So... What has happened since? This victory has given the opposition immense self-confidence. And with the deepening economic crisis uh, for almost two years, since 2020 to to the end of last year, um, Erdogan's support has been weakening in the polls. His party came up, came down to about 30%. His support was fluctuating between 40, 42%, 40%. And, and, you know, for, I know these don't sound low, but for Turkey, these were, uh, and considering also the level of repression, these yeah. were... Uh, Many politicians would kill for such numbers. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> but con- relatively, Turkey. these were pretty uh, important. Uh, you know, it seemed like the opposition stands a great chance and uh, CHP's popularity exceeded AKP's and vote intentions. Um, until recently, the, the opposition Nationalist Party gained uh, almost, uh, polling was polling almost 20%. So... The opposition was very hopeful, and I think this created a, a sense of we're going to win anyway, which uh, has currently created a very dangerous situation. So they um, they let themselves, um, I think, be convinced that no matter what happens, and who ma- no matter who they put as candidate, they can win this election because people are just fed up with how bad the economic situation is. And it's really bad, of course. So, you know... Um, in some sense, they thought that it would be enough. But 
the, since December, more or less, Erdogan is again increasing in the polls and the opposition is losing some ground. And this has, I think, several reasons. The first is that Erdogan has started campaigning, which is something that, you know, they should have taken into account. Erdogan is still a very skillful politician able to read very much uh, the political space. And he's fighting for his survival. So several things happened. First, he started campaigning in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, um, they current, recently announced a reduction of the pension age. That is, people who have completed a certain year and started working before a certain year will now be able to receive pension. And it's a huge group of people, a powerful lobby, if you like. Uh, more probably such initiatives will come in the sort of distributive realm. The other move that they made was um, preparing to ban Imamoglu from competing in the presidential race. Like, Imamoglu is not currently the candidate for president of the opposition, but he was a prominent name. And Erdogan has moved to try him uh, for a word he said in, a, in an interview, uh, which was said against the interior minister, uh, a sort of mild, insulting word, which was said against the interior minister, something like stupid. Uh, but they framed it to have uh, been an insult against electoral uh, court officials and are prosecuting him for, for it and actually sentenced him for it. So this creates a situation where not only could Imamoglu be, receive a political ban, it has not yet been conserved and confirmed, which would uh, keep him out of the presidential race, or even if he competes, uh, might be an excuse for them not to give, not to recognize his victory. And more, furthermore, it they are discussing appointing a trustee to Istanbul municipality. Now, this is a very bold move that I think for many are still unimaginable, but I think it showed how decided Erdogan is to win this election and how much he doesn't fear uh, anything. And unfortunately, I think this is also giving him a psychological advantage. In the meantime, obviously, uh, the problem of the election of the candidate on the side of the opposition has been that the head of the CHP, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the head of the secular Republican CHP, uh, has uh, put it into his mind that he should be candidate. And initially, the reasons for that were that, you know, he's an older politician. It's the end of his career. And he would be ideal as a person to receive a very powerful presidency and then dismantle it, because this is what the opposition is promising. They want to bring back a parliamentary system, or at least a semi-presidential uh, system, with an elected but weakened president and a much stronger parliament. And I think the fear uh, in some is that Imamoglu being a very ambitious, successful young politician would find it hard uh, to, to dismantle um, this powerful presidency. Um, so right. at some point, Kılıçdaroğlu's candidacy became prominent and uh, Turkish political parties in particular, see, you know, being quite leader-centered and giving the leader lots of power uh, over um, delegates and, and MPs, he has managed to consolidate the party behind his own candidacy. And currently, the CHP is still pushing, despite the fact that Kılıçdaroğlu is a less popular, I believe, much less electable candidate than, than Imamoğlu. But this is still an ongoing struggle between in the opposition uh, coalition. Well, it's... Um... It's, it seems that they don't have too much time to decide, but I understand that this uh, uncertainty about Mamogu's future, whether the appeal court would confirm or reject his sentence, is also something that they have to take in mind. And internal divisions are not making this, this easier. But um, I would like to ask you um, maybe a broader question. What is actually the 
because you know also considering the the how deep is the economic crisis in Turkey, it seems quite incredible that Erdogan manages to uh, stick to power and uh, and I mean actually his support I think it might be even rising in the in the recent well weeks let's say. And um, you wrote an interesting uh, paper about the partisanship and autocratization. And you, you you said, I mean, maybe maybe you want to tell us more about it, but that in, in some ways the support for the oppositions can be considered, um, well, a similar relationship in like with the like in the Western kind of democratic systems, but there is a lot of clientelism with regard to the support for for Erdogan party. And I'm 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 interested in how do you see the now after after the economic crisis i mean turkey is still going through this um how do you see the the power base of the erdogan and what is the structure of the support for the opposition and how the current months can possibly change it if at all um so yeah can you give us a, a more like a broader perspective on the on the kind of social structure being behind Erdogan and and several uh, opposition parties. Sure. The first thing I want to say um, is that this is an authoritarian regime. So Erdogan's support is high, but it is high in part thanks to a significant amount of repression, lots of cheating and lots of lies, and practically full control over uh, media. So... Why is this important? Because, and this is something I want to emphasize, um, so for you know, uh, whoever is listening to keep in mind that when we look at these election results, even if Erdogan wins, this doesn't mean that essentially you know, a majority of Turkish society today agrees with everything he does. If that were the case, it wouldn't be necessary for him to lie, repress, and cheat uh, the way he's doing. So... This is something always to keep in mind. How does it matter in this particular context? Well, first, um, as I said, there is, um, well, let's take what you, let's take the point of clientelism first. So currently, uh, you know, since the beginning, if you like, um, Erdogan's base included the urban peripheries, a lower educated, uh, if you look at uh, income and education levels by party voting in Turkey, the lowest will usually be the Kurdish uh, parties because they have, you know, the southeast of Turkey is, is the poorest among poorest regions and uh, Kurds are, are, you know, usually migrant workers in, in, in big cities. So they will have the sort of lower socioeconomic support base. The second one would be the AKP. So the AKP has actually quite high profile uh, sort of upper, let's say upper middle class entrepreneurial uh, cadres uh, throughout, you know, their, their party structures, but their base used to be a kind of a poorer, less educated, uh, urban in particular, but also sort of small, small, uh, small cities. So they get a lot of votes in Istanbul urban areas, but the kind of partisan core of the AKP used to be in small Anatolian towns, uh, socially more conservative um, places. But they couldn't win without the support of peripheral urban voters, if you like. And in part, that's where their support started uh, weakening with the economic crisis, because it was a more pragmatic vote, more dependent on good governance, clientelism, um, and, you know, the, the sort of strength uh, display uh, of, of, of the party, which was, uh, you know, in, in its heyday, uh, AKP was a very well-organized um, machinery, not only in terms of clientelism, but also in, in terms of providing uh, 
uh, for local uh, by through local governments, and also made a lot of investments, obviously in, in, in big cities. Um, why has that support not melted? What the polls have shown is that people are demobilized. Their support for Erdogan's party, especially the party, goes down, especially as corruption has increased uh, and the party has become less relevant. Uh, but they don't close up, warm up to the opposition that much. Now, how do I explain that? I think, and this is speculative because it's difficult to know, uh, you know what's happening. It's also difficult to conduct research in Turkey increasingly. But um, what's happening is, on the one hand, that for many years there was a very polarizing divide, which has been kept up also through media control in the last 10 years. It's been, almost been 10 years that Erdogan has consolidated his control over the media, over the mainstream media. So it's a long time. Uh, during which opposition politicians have been have had difficulty reaching out, uh, even if they have tried reaching out to um, beyond beyond their base. And how Imamoglu broke this, uh, I think, has a lot to do with his with his persona, uh, with his political persona, and also with Istanbul, which is not exactly you know like people who vote for the AKP in Istanbul are not identical to people who vote for the AKP in Central Anatolia or you know. Um, um, they they have different you know slightly different um, partisan weaker partisan attachments is what we found um, in that paper. Okay, so does that maybe um, help answer your question? Then there is the, the 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 nationalism. So this is maybe another thing to highlight. So what Erdogan did uh, during his uh, last ten years in power since 2015, so less than ten years, is actually completely shift his outlook, his discourse from. Uh, one emphasizing, you know, the Islamist uh, sort of Islamic brotherhood of the peoples of the Middle East and beyond, and you know, of Turkey also, uh, meaning you know between Kurds and Turks, to a sort of aggressive nationalist attitude. Uh, not only in his coalition with the nationalists to kind of get that base, so essentially he lost some of his base and won over some of that nationalist base um, with 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 this discourse and the policies, uh, which obviously also meant that he has to include them in the patronage. And and, uh, you know, bring in also their mafia networks. Uh, the, the Nationalist Party historically has these uh, sort of uh, collusive state mafia criminal uh, political networks. Uh, bring them uh, into play, you know, bring some mafia bosses out of office, out of jail, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, so it has meant a lot of transformations in politics for him to be able to maintain his position. So it may look like nothing, things aren't changing. Erdogan remains in power, but the underlying sort of political constellation has changed massively. He's lost the Kurdish base, which for 10 years voted, you know, many of them voted for him because many Kurds are conservative. And he replaced them with um, nationalists, uh, sort of Islamic nationalist uh, tradition um, of, of, you know, historical kind of ideological tradition in, in the country. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it seems fascinating, this, this kind of transformation that he managed to, to pull off. And... I also wanted to ask you, uh, what is the, the the role of this coup, coup attempt that was that happened in July 2016? I mean, the the Erdogan purged the well the opposition, and well, basically, it seems that it was like turning point uh, in the recent Turkish history. At the same time, it's 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 very hard to say to what extent it was really like. like who was really behind it and who was just opposing Erdogan and what was the role of and what is still the role of Gulen's movement if, if at all in, in Turkey can you and these are all accusations of this like you know inner state 
um, that's been very popular in, in Turkey for four years. Can you give us more like background, like w- which part of this might be the, the Erdogan propaganda, which of it is real, and to what extent this coup attempt still plays the role, the memory of, of this today, seven years after? Yeah, so, uh, so I wanted to say one more thing that slipped my mind, I'm going to get to this, was pu- public employment, essentially uh, an important part of, you know, uh, clientism today is public employment, um, and, uh, you know, people feel that they have to obtain AKP membership to get employment, so this has become, some sense, a party state, so, you know, evaluating electoral politics should be should be from the perspective that this is a, a, essentially a, um, a state party and uh, a party state. Uh, so coming to your question about Gulenism. So I know for foreigners it is difficult to believe <laughs> in this, uh, and it sounds like crazy Erdogan propaganda, uh, that, you know, there was this organization that was secretly placing people in high, politi- in high positions in this bureaucracy and the military, etc. But this is all true. And uh, this is another one of the major transformations, underlying political transformations that happened in the Erdogan era. So, you know, one is the replacement of Kurds with nationalists. Um, and the other one is this uh, fallout with uh, the, the Gulen organization. So what is the Gulen organization? Uh, it is um, an Islamist organization that since the 1980s has uh, led a certain double life, if you like. In the 1980s was a moment when Islamists found an opportunity to enter politics uh, more openly in the new kind of uh, world order, if you like, and Turkish uh, politics. And some chose the electoral route, uh, as did Erdogan's, you know, mentor and all parties, Nejmetin Erbakan and, you know, Erdogan's generation of Islamists. Others thought that we will never be able to make it through ele- elections and we'll, we have to do it surreptitiously. And this was Gulen's uh, route. So Gulen, uh, since the 1980s, uh, you know, started, uh, they, they established, um, started placing people, raising students to enter the police force, the military force, passing exams. Increasingly, um, they were able to, once they had people in, the, in these positions, they were able to cheat uh, their way up. That is, you know, stealing questions and, um, and, uh, effectively bullying people to position their people, then they were able to establish what he did on the surface. It was, a, you know, a, a, he was an orator, a religious orator, a very popular one, um, and uh, established schools and, you know, foundations um, to, to raise students, to attract, to, to gather funds. It became a huge social movement, if you like, uh, part overground, part underground. And the reason why it had to be underground is because in those years, the military was effectively uh, purging Islamist, uh, you know, uh, people, especially from the military forces. And to avoid that purging, they had to be hidden. And uh, when Erdogan came to power, when the AKP came to power, they stopped all the purges. They effectively had an alliance uh, with, with Gulen, which allowed the Gulenists to thrive and, you know, place their people further in the military, in, in the bureaucracy, and gave Erdogan, a, you know, um, the loyalty of many in the police and the military, uh, sort of responsive to Gulen, but also um, wide civil society influence. Gulen also had some media organizations, you know, that were basically not working for profit, but for um, the, the political purposes of, of the group. What happened? Why did they fall uh, out? Well, probably Gulen thought that, you know, Erdogan having gotten very powerful, they, they thought that actually their interests are no longer uh, allied and, um, and tried to undermine um, 
Erdogan, or I don't know exactly who started it, but publicly at least, it seemed like it started from the Gulen side with the leaking of some uh, recordings of Erdogan's and his ministers making evident uh, a significant amount of corruption, um, which then started police purges and then, uh, you know, closing of all the Gulen schools uh, and all the Gulen foundation, you know, many Gulen foundations, uh, harassment of businesses related to them, and eventually the kind of reaction uh, of the remaining officers uh, before they're being purged, of starting a coup. At least this is the reading I think that Turkish people currently, you know, most Turkish people currently have of it. Of course, the courts and everything that came after uh, was not at all um, reliable. So what I refer, what I'm referring to is that the kind of purging of tens of thousands of people without proper investigation and trial was not, you know, not everybody who's been purged was a Gulenist. Even if they were had sympathies for Gulen, they weren't guilty of anything. There was huge abuse, human rights abuses during the two-year uh, period of uh, emergency rule. Uh, many people lost their retirements, jobs, pensions. It was civic death for many. It was it was a tragedy, um, really. What happened to people suspected, uh, you know, of being villainous for things like having a bank account in a bank or having a certain, you know, crypt- crypto app on their on their phones. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, as you say, it's it's almost unimaginable the scale of the purge, but also the, the the fact that to such an extent it was well a real attempt, and I think also the relationship with the well mostly Western countries, which were hesitant at the beginning to condemn the 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 attempt of the coup. Also, uh, well, it was kind of turning point of Erdogan's relationship with the with the EU. Uh, perhaps also with the U.S. to some extent. And coming to the end of, of our recording, I wanted to ask you, what is the role of the, of the well, external affairs uh, with, within, uh, the, within the political campaign? Is it like, uh, is it, well, first of all, to, to what extent the, the, the NATO, the NATO Swedish and, well, to less extent Finnish, candidature plays in, inside Turkey, to what extent it is important that the Quran was burnt in front of the uh, Turkish embassy in, in Stockholm and then Sweden, well, couldn't or didn't want to stop it. Uh, to what extent also the potential or coming rapprochement with, with Bashar Assad might play out? Uh, it seems that the problem of the refugees, Syrian refugees, has been... Uh, well, it seems to be number three, at least I saw some polls that it's number three uh, within the country after unemployment and inflation. And also, is it like anything that the outside world, there was like big reports in economists about Turkey and the economists is preaching that the EU and US to put some pressure on Erdogan to, uh, well, keep those elections at least free, if not fair. So trying to sum up all these different issues, what extent the, the external affairs play the role in the, in, the, in the campaign, and can you give us the outline of what can it is if anything actually can be done from the from the outside to um, to try to keep those elections as free as possible? Yes. So thank you very much for raising the question of the refugees. I should have mentioned that. So this is the second uh, biggest grievance, as you say. So the first is the economy, probably, and this is the, this is a universal grievance, um, and it is uh, you know it's a some extent, a terrifyingly xenophobic reaction, but also understandable given that, um, you know, the, the government hasn't stepped in to support people who are experiencing uh, the consequences of not only 
you know, there being more, vastly more uh, foreigners uh, in the country and as a kind of, as a social phenomenon, but also the fact that some of these are rich uh, rich people, not only from 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 you know the Arab, uh, from the Gulf countries, and now increasingly from from Russia and Ukraine, who also put huge pressure on rent prices uh, in the country, and it has become truly difficult to live. And so this is a grievance mixed of you know economic and uh, social, cultural, and, and sort of insecurity feeling uh, in a condition in a situation where many in the opposition do not trust the state will protect them. Um, so it is a uh, a, a massive, a massive and explosive issue. Um, so, what is the role of Erdogan's foreign policy in his in his power? Well, with these grievances, with you know the economic situation being terrible and uh, people being um, really upset at uncontrolled immigration, and Erdogan being clearly responsible for this immigration, it's actually the only issue where his base blames him. Because for the other issues. People who are really partisan, they say, oh, it's the pandemic, there's inflation everywhere, you know, and the media kind of uh, repeat these messages. But the refugee issue is, is clearly put in Erdogan's court, sometimes also in the EU's in the sense that, yes, they gave us money to keep the refugees and, you know, we're bearing the, the, the consequences of, of their actions. Um, so to, in some sense, to, uh, to distract attention from these problems, the nationalist uh, card, the kind of foreign aggression card has been working very well. Um, since 2015, first through operations in Syria, of which there were several, uh, and then Erdogan's also military nationalism in uh, that sort of um, this kind of propaganda on investment in military equipment, for example, these drones uh, that were uh, sent to Ukraine and became hugely popular also in the context of the war, that they are produced domestically, uh, that they found gas in the Black Sea, oil in the Mediterranean, you know, these things repeated through propaganda ad nauseum. Um, actually are quite effective in giving people something to be proud of about the government and the country and also for Erdogan to project strength on the international scene. So stoking this national pride, the kind of thing that, oh, look, even the U.S. has to listen to us. And, you know, and these things repeated in the media, as I said, you know, uh, that Erdogan decides what how things happen and they have to respect us and, you know, we won't uh, do whatever they tell us, you know, this kind of challenging attitude. In his base, uh, I, I found recently done in focus groups, and I found that this kind of um, of policy has a reflection, is picked up, and it works for him. And I think he's using it also for that reason. Um, when it comes to what the outside world can do, um, it's a bit difficult in the sense that I think even the Turkish opposition understands and feels that we have to do this by ourselves. Uh, and maybe they have been late at figuring out how exactly people abroad can help. But the truth is we cannot do this. You know, even if the opposition wins the election, this will be a hugely difficult situation. They will inherit a very big mess, a very sort of disgruntled population, uh, a terrible economic situation. And we will be needing huge support from the EU, the US, and all the sort of, you know, community of democratic states uh, to to get through this. And what this means, first of all, is to establish dialogue and it is to try and understand, uh, you know, the position of the political actors who are trying to operate under a huge pressure uh, to try to mediate perhaps uh, between them. And I'm thinking here the Kurds and, you know, uh, the nationalists. This is, um, I don't know what potential there would be for this, but um, trying to create spaces where, where, where these forces can come together 
uh, maybe another one. In terms of putting pressure uh, on Erdogan to not abuse certain things, I'm not entirely sure what leverage there is in the West, to be honest. Um, if they find they have any leverage, it will be immensely helpful to you know, dissuade uh, from a political ban uh, on, on Imamov, obviously. But I don't trust that um, there is too much leverage in this current situation. Unfortunately, Russia's aggression in Ukraine and the war has been hugely helpful for Erdogan. It has been uh, it has given new life to his relationship with NATO, with the US. It has again made Turkey invaluable, and it has brought in uh, funds, and uh, you know made him also more valuable to Putin. The burning of the Quran uh, clearly, to me, is is uh, falls in in, in so it's a Russian intervention to use in that sense uh, this leverage that he has um, with sort of Erdogan's opposition to Sweden in NATO. Uh, so it's a, it's a clearly provocative move done by somebody with ties to Russia um, to uh, sort of stoke up, use in a sense Erdogan's uh, discourse to, to further divide and uh, block the expansion of NATO. I, I expect this will continue until the election and probably after the election it will no longer be an issue, but who knows. Well, thank you, Melis. It's, 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 well, it's kind of mixed. I wouldn't say entirely gloomy, but also not extremely optimistic picture that you're painting for us. I think what uh, falls on the side of, of you, at least, is to, uh, is to show that there is the, the future for Turkey if Turkey decides within the European family. And certainly that uh, we will do whatever it takes to help Turkey if that would be the decision of the voters to help up Turkey after Erdogan, it, if, if providing it can come back to the kind of democratic and stable also economically course. And I am, um, well, I think we, we should do more, I mean, speaking of you at least, to, to show that it is for the Turkish voters to decide the future of Turkey, but that well, we are waiting and we are ready and we are also ready to help. And I think especially with the, uh, with the refugees, Turkey was really and is still carrying the burden that the Europeans themselves were not ready uh, to do. And the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and reaction to Ukrainian refugees shows that there is a lot of hypocrisy with treatment of, of refugees depending on where they come from. So uh, let's hope that there is a future after Erdogan for Turkey. And um, thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. It, it was a real pleasure. Thank you, Reshek. I just want to really emphasize that, you know, even if this election doesn't go the way that we hope it goes, um, there is still a role for, for the EU. Currently, many civil society organizations, many independent media groups are being supported uh, by uh, funds from the EU, from uh, Western foundations and individuals. And... Uh, these are making huge differences. There is also obviously nationally crowdfunded, you know, independent media. It's a very difficult environment for journalists. There's been uh, also now social media uh, censorship laws uh, such that any YouTuber in, uh, effectively can find themselves in jail tomorrow. So this is a hugely challenging environment. And, and please, uh, I also want to emphasize again, yes, voters make the decision, but they don't actually make the decision in the sense that there is also the infrastructure prepared for the election to be stolen, if necessary, not by stuffing ballots, but by manipulating who is on the um, district, province, uh, you know, uh, electoral uh, court councils, which last time were crucial in uh, not allowing the government to falsify a victory in Istanbul. So 
it will be very critical after the election. The counting of the votes will be very critical and pressure in that period uh, will be essential. Communication with the opposition will be essential. So this is not a free election. This is not a fair election. It will most likely not be one. So I also urge all political actors in Europe to please keep that in mind and, and uh, try to understand the situation on the ground from, from that perspective. Absolutely. We should keep on supporting the democratic Turkey and don't take the Erdogan as face value and representing the, the Turkish people uh, on the whole. The, the picture is much more complicated. And thank you so much for, thank you. for, for, for doing this for us to understand more the, the, the internal Turkish politics a little bit better. Um, it was Melis uh, Labens today, and uh, that's all for me uh, this week. Please tune in for Ricardo's Sudas next week, until two weeks. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.